When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Eric Smith, who is a professor of rhetoric or rhetoric at York University on the eastern seaboard somewhere, I assume in a city of York or perhaps a township. I don't know. I should have looked that up before starting this introduction. What I do know is that Eric teaches rhetoric or rhetoric. And in this conversation, we talk about rhetorical maneuvers that are afoot within wokeness and anti-wokeness as two kind of competing discourses. Eric is teaching a course on rhetoric, as you might imagine, at York University and actually using my evergreen documentary to explore the ways in which reason pathos and logic are used or disabused within that particular event. This is a really meaty discussion uh, filled with words, and uh, I guess we build bridges and rope courses of communication in this. He provides a lot of very salient methods of discussing discourse and of examining discourse, which is a favorite topic of mine. So... Here's Eric Smith. Okay. How's your uh, quarter or semester going? The semester is going. Yeah. Um, one, I have two sections of one course that is focusing on the evergreen, the complete evergreen story. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. We're watching episode 13 as a class tomorrow and discussing. What, what, what happens in episode 13? <laughs> Um, episode i mean yeah i know uh episode 13 is um the most salient aspect of that uh episode for me anyway Mm -hmm. is when the uh the 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 black man who works there is screaming at them that this is useless yeah and jamil's like oh no more of that yeah and it's so much for caring about black people jamil Yeah, I felt so bad and I wrestled with including that or not, but it was just so a part of yeah. the thing. It was so part of yeah. what was actually going on. No, I'm glad you did. Yeah. It's very telling. Yeah. Yeah. It seems very telling. So yeah, so that's what we're doing. And I intersperse, you know, watching episodes with principles of rhetoric, you know, rhetorical appeals, uh, rhetorical context, uh, wow. the use of pathos um, over reason. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, uh, the concept of uh, 
public emotion and desecration and things like that. Hmm. You know, um, there's a concept by, um, I think, Harold Garfinkel. Um, he calls uh, a status degradation ceremony. With, mm-hmm. you know, we, we used to tar and feather people in the town square, right? Now we mob them on social media, but it's the same thing. Hmm. You know, it's a degradation ceremony. And when, you're de- when your purpose is to degrade somebody and not have a conversation, you do things like focus on their hand gestures as being problematic, right? Yes. You do things like that. There's, there's no intention of getting to an understanding. The point is to humiliate this person. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that's we, we discuss uh, that as a rhetorical strategy. And, um, yeah, um, it's pretty interesting. What, what's your take on uh, – so there's a uh, – on the first day of the protest, there's this library. They're on the top of the library in this big hall. And there's uh-huh. actually several episodes of that. And the protesters, they, they arrange themselves by race. And then they, they prioritize themselves by race. But it seems like the people right up in front, it's coordinated, but it doesn't seem coordinated. Uh, what is your perspective on how they're acting? The, the behavior, they're, they're passing the mic and uh, they all kind of know how to act or they're all like uh, practicing these different rhetorical maneuvers. I was wondering, like, where, do, do you have an idea of like how, if that was emergent or if that's just kind of things that are floating around in different discourses? It's, that's a good question. And, and you know, the, the honest answer is I don't know. I mean, I can speculate. Um, you know, um, it, it, it seems like they have this idea, this performance, right? This, um, they, they, they have a script, so to speak. As loose as it may be, there is a script and there's a way of um, acting and speaking. There are certain terms to be used. I, um, I use the term discourse with my students, right? Um, discourse isn't just conversation. It's, it's basically the, um, you know, it's the exposition of an ideology. It's, a, it's an exposition of um, uh, beliefs, values, attitudes. Okay. Right? Um, there's a social linguist named James G. His name is James G. And um, he goes as far as to say hand gestures, clothes, you know, all these things are part of a particular discourse. So they are they are steeped in that discourse. They know it well. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so in a sense, it's emergent, but they already it's coming from a certain foundation. Right. OK. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you what do you think about the word bodies uh, that pops up there? What, I was just thinking that? that this morning. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. Okay. I had a poor humanist to you. <laughs> I um I critiqued a um I guess it was a keynote address um uh, because I think I, I, it was about anti-racism and I said uh, is this really the best way of going about doing this um you know is it the best way to uh, say that you know the, the very presence of white teachers is a problem you know um, and somebody uh, wrote back in a very vitriolic uh, email. He said, I didn't realize the damage my body was doing to people of color. <laughs> and I Wait, said, was okay, he so, was he yeah. adopting the discourse or mocking the discourse? He was adopting it. He was oh, serious. Okay. OK, he was serious. And, and, and that that struck me because I'm like, OK, so this is my body, right? Yeah. I can do with it what I want. I can say with it what I want. Now I have to, you know, make sure that you're going to be OK with 
me saying this because it's coming out of a, a certain kind of body. It's very, very strange. And, and, and I mean, talk about objectification, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a person, I'm a body. Yeah, it's totally dehumanizing. And it's just odd that there's so many contradictions in the discourse, as you put it. Uh, but I, somehow it, it all works or it's it's there's there's no like care that there is contradiction or hypocrisy is not a value that's important. But right. but part of the rhetoric talks about dehumanization and then they do that uh, when they when they speak of themselves as these you know pool balls. Well, I mean, I always go back to the concept and critical race theory of uh, racial realism that Derek Bell brought up okay. um, and to sum it up. He basically says, hey, racism is not going away. We can't fix it. You know, um, not in this system anyway. So the best we can do is acknowledge that and, and, and move on. Um, you add that to the idea that there's, this system cannot be revised, right? This system cannot be um, improved. It has to go away. So if, you're, if your goal is to tear it all down, who cares about hypocrisy? Yeah. Who cares about truth and accuracy? Yeah. The, the point is to create enough cognitive dissonance to throw people off, you know, so that you can uh, gain some kind of control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how are your students ingesting uh, the complete evergreen story? Do they like walk out in a daze? Like what are the emotions that they... Um, everything you can possibly imagine. Um, there are people... <laughs> I had... Um, one student, the, the first assignment was an objective rhetorical analysis. Like, um, how are the protesters using emotion? How are they using reason? How are they not using reason? Yeah. Um, uh, how are they considering their audience? How are they not considering their audience? And it had to be objective. And I one student had a great uh, uh, analysis, but he was so passionate about his feelings about what was going on. I was like, hold on. That's the next assignment. The next oh. assignment, you can give your opinion and you, and, and and back it up thoroughly. Okay. Uh, that's actually due tomorrow. Okay. Um, so uh, I'll let you know how that goes. But um, huh. I have I have students who are just so frustrated, you know, and I have other students who are kind of empathetic, right, um, to the protesters and what they're trying to do, and there there are the people in between, you know. So uh, it's 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 what you can imagine. I do feel bad though. You know, subjecting them to this weekly, right? Uh, all the screaming and the 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 mm -hmm. lack of logic, mm -hmm. you know, um, the over emotional responses to innocuous things. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, I feel like I'm torturing them. Sometimes. Well, maybe it's like a vaccine. You think, like perhaps a inoculation? Uh... Yes, yes. Uh, immerse them in this nonsense so that they can better deal with it when they go out into the real world. Waterboarding by Evergreen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to community love the pain out of your body. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what else are you working on? Your full-time teacher, you had a book. We talked about that last time. Um, yes. That was already printed, or was yeah. that about to be printed? Okay. That was already printed. Yeah. Um, it, people are noticing it. Yeah. You know, nobody in my field is. <laughs> you know, um, nobody in rhetoric and composition is noticing it. It's a very controversial book, right? Um, mm. and, and and you know the you know the trend when it comes to that. You know, um, 
the when people run away from conversation, right? It's because that conversation isn't going to help their cause. It's, it's going to, it, we don't want understanding here. You know, we, 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 we want to change the system, right? Mm. So they're not going to read the book and, you know, consider my argument and how it counters their argument and, you know, um, you know, at least start to have a intertextual conversation, right? They're not going to do that. Yeah. They're going, oh, that's against us. We're going to ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist, mm. right? That's uh, the new academia when it comes to anti-racism anyway. Oh, so wow. I'm not surprised that no one in my field is really talking about it. But um, people outside of the field are taking notice, right? Um, you know, um, I, so I, what's I the core prim- premise that you think people are, are noticing? or? Um, well, I talk about how current anti-racism is actually doing more harm than good, and I, I, uh, I try to show why or how it's doing more harm than good. And I recommend... Um, anti-racism based in empowerment theory. Um, and empowerment theory has three main components. It has the intrapersonal, the interactional, and the behavioral. Uh, the intrapersonal is about how we speak to ourselves, right? Um, positive oh. self-regard, knowing our strengths okay. and our weaknesses, um, having a secure base, you know, that um, allows us to take risks in life and, 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 and um, you know, strive for goals and things like that. The interactional is how we come together and communicate, how we interact, how we how we understand each other, how we understand each other's discourses, right? Mm-hmm. And behavioral is um, more strategic, is how we get things done. Now that we know ourselves and we know each other, how do we collaborate to actually make positive change? Okay, yeah. Um, you know, uh, couching anti-racism in that is, I, I think, is a good idea. And Chloe Vardary is already doing something similar. Um, with theory, the, of uh, enchantment. theory of enchantment. Yeah, she's already doing something similar, and I, I, I really admire that. I'm trying to get her to your college somehow. Um, oh, yeah. In, in, in the future. But uh, that's basically what the book is about. And, uh, and for, for that reason, it seems to be getting some traction outside of yeah. the field of rhetoric and composition. Yeah. It, it To me, it seems like a lot of uh, critical theory. So before critical race theory, there was critical theory and the, the whole postmodern um, turn, it it split off from rhetoric. Uh, they kind of made certain claims about everything being a text that you can pull apart and interpret right. and then overlaid that over the world. And I think that while that is fun, uh, it can go too far. Uh, but where where do you think rhetoric went wrong or where do you uh, pause before it goes overboard with regards to what is rhetoric and how can it be useful and how can it actually be used as a weapon? Do you see it weaponized and how do you see oh. like, just the discipline itself? Well, I mean, that was Plato's problem with rhetoric, right? You know, yeah. um, or, well, Socrates, right, um, yeah. through Plato. His problem was that, you know, you can weaponize this. You know, um, somebody who is totally full of crap but sounds good, right, abides by the preferred discourse of the audience is going to go farther than somebody telling the truth who doesn't know the audience, mm-hmm. right? Um, so initially, Plato was like, forget about rhetoric at all. As long as you tell the truth and you tell it well enough, you know, you're going to be able to persuade. He changes his tune a little bit later on 
in his life. And he says, the truth is important, but we also need to consider audience and, <laughs> you know, um, look into, um, he says something akin to, uh, try to look into the soul of the audience or the soul of the other person and speak yeah. accordingly. Yeah. Right. Um, so rhetoric is important, right. Uh, when it comes to getting one's message across the, problem is that when you know you get uh the frankfurt school you know not trusting any kind of um, hegemonic force yeah. and you get foucault you know deconstructing uh everything um we won't get into some of the other french guys let's just start and stop with foucault okay. when you get that now everything's rhetoric right yeah, yeah. you know uh, now we're not we're not trying to um you know seek a truth together right um, we're using language in ways that benefit us somehow. You know, um, I was once accused of, um, when I made a valid point against somebody, I was accused of rhetorical gymnastics. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I wasn't, I was, I was, I, I explained myself, you know, thoroughly. That's what happened. And, um, you know, <laughs> because that person couldn't refute it, I was participating in rhetorical gymnastics. Okay. Um, so now everything's rhetoric. So now when a person um, um, who um, is comfortable in a hegemonic position says something, you know, um, the question isn't whether they're trying to trick me or not. They are. I just don't know how. Right. Um, it, so and, and everything it, becomes a cynical game. Every right. rhetor is now cynical. Uh, I guess that's right. bad faith is assumed. Right. Right. And, and that seems to be what's going on. Hmm. Um, there's a, Richard Paul is a philosopher, I think he passed a few years ago, but he distinguishes what he calls fair-minded critical thinking from sophistic critical thinking. The sophists being the people who Socrates was complaining about initially, you know, hmm. using rhetoric for bad purposes. Um, fair-minded critical thinking is just, you know, I'm looking for the truth, right? What, if, even if I don't like what I find, the truth is the truth, and I'm going to be, you know, fair-minded when it comes to that. Sophistic critical thinking is, as you can imagine, um, you know, I'm going to uh, participate in epistemological rigor to the point where, or insofar as it benefits me, right? Mm -hmm. If I get to a certain point and the conclusion doesn't benefit me, I'm going to sweep it under the rug or do something, use my own rhetorical gymnastics, uh, to um, dismiss it somehow, mm -hmm. right? So uh, that's where rhetoric seems to be uh, coming into play regarding critical theory and, and, and things like that. Hmm. Do, do you see a way forward if, if the um, paragons of academia and knowledge making, as they like to call themselves, not paragons, but knowledge makers, um, if they all adopt this cynical mindset um which which is again another hypocrisy they are the hegemon right right <laughs> <laughs> yeah but if yeah. they adopt that like how how do you see um the ship a writing if everything becomes this veil of power by you know making everything about power or uh is, is is there a path forward or is it planting seeds in the young folk? Is it is it thinking like a generation ahead from your vantage point right now? Um, okay, so I, I, I think you're asking, like, uh, because of what's happening now, how will things look 
you know, uh, in a few years? Yeah. From a rhetorical standpoint or a political yeah. standpoint? Or? Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, well, I think Evergreen is a nice little Petri dish of what happens when everybody mm -hmm. adopts that. Um, and there's a lot of stuff hidden there in the emails where the professors are acting this out in a more sophisticated way. But they are canceling one another, bullying one another, uh, doing mm -hmm. everything that the students are doing. And then there's the administrative level who's just doing some really weird stuff by positioning everybody against each other to assume more power in the long run. Um, so I'm just wondering if in the field of rhetoric, if everybody adopts, which is odd, if everybody in rhetoric is adopting, uh, you know, I, I guess critical race theory as the lens through which to do rhetoric, where does that leave rhetoric to go if they all have to perform that that is and i'm going to sound dramatic here but that is the death of rhetoric you know as consider considering uh one's audience and situation and 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 speaking or writing accordingly the point of rhetoric is to deal with probability right um aristotle called it um artistic proof right inartistic proof is proof where you don't need rhetorical savvy you don't need to consider your audience um, I used to use the example of two plus two is four. You know, you don't need rhetoric to explain that. Now I can't do Little that. Little did you know. Right? right. Now I can't do that. So, you know, some other kind of, uh, you know, uh, objective uh, truth or, or something like that is inartistic. You don't need the art of rhetoric. Artistic proof is, you know, the, the, the answer isn't clear here, but we can get to the best understanding of the answer through conversation, through collaboration, okay. through deliberation. Yeah. Right. And that takes, you know, um, understanding one's audience, understanding the discourse in which you find yourself and speaking or sometimes writing accordingly. Right. So if there's only one way to think. Mm. Right. Then you don't really need that. There's one way to think. There's one discourse to abide by. Hmm. You know, there's, there's, there's. You don't need to convince anybody anymore because everybody's convinced. Oh right? yeah. Okay. You don't need to yeah. persuade people anymore because they're already persuaded. And if they go against that, they're ostracized. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So who needs rhetoric anymore? Yeah. The uh, methods or the tools of persuasion atrophy. Um, and they're yes. reduced into a very small bucket of ostracization or slander or just these tools that are very, very blunt. Yes. Um, there are time periods where rhetoric is just empty performance. It's called a sophistic, right? Think about the uh, hmm. Roman Republic becoming, you know, um, yeah. you know, empires, right? It's just, it, we go from senators to emperors and things like that. The senators needed rhetoric. They were deliberating. Oh, right. Yeah. They're trying to convince each other, you know, of policy um, and, um, you know, how best to run Rome and its and its territories. Right. Mm -hmm. You need rhetoric for that. When it's one person calling the shots, you don't need that anymore. Right. In fact, to question that person is, you know, anathema at best and a death sentence at worst. Mm -hmm. Right. So you don't need rhetoric anymore. So now rhetoric becomes it goes from being a effective tool of politicians to performance art, right? Now yeah. it's, uh, I'm going to, um, the, the best rhetorician is the person who makes you feel the best or feel the, the most passionate about a particular, particular subject or something like that. There's no more political efficacy to it. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think um, 
CRT is trying to kill rhetoric in, in a large way. That, that's really sad. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yes, it's very sad. Um, but I think you, you said that that there are periods of of uh, fruiting and flowering, or or ways in which discourse uh, collapses upon emperors. And with what we're looking at, it seems like CRT replicates a hive mind in a way. Like there, there, it's a you know, holographic emperor where everybody has a little piece of it, and they all kind of mm-hmm. hone in on that. Um, have you seen? Uh, I guess. The art then is to get as far as possible without being shut down, is to is to make as many points into the discourse. Somebody who, I guess, adopts CRT and wants that to be yeah. the the uh, end-all, be-all of discourse. What is that the correct way to do it? See how far you can get without being canceled? Or, or do you just say, okay, well, you guys are lost. Let's start over again. Just like kind of a hard reset. Um, well, I would say that uh, you should get as far as you can without getting canceled. Um, but there's, there's already a wall there, right? You know, um, even if you are saying, well, let's do it. I like what you guys are doing, but let's tweak it a little bit this way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can tweak it a little bit until you're tweaking it a lot, and then, you know, you're suspect, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if there's a wiggle room within CRT to, to really have these discussions. Okay. You know, and, um, yeah, you're right. That's sad. Yeah. There's, uh, this, I keep on talking about this app, uh, because I keep on spending way too much time on it. It's called clubhouse. It's audio only. And, uh, are you familiar with it? There's a bunch I'm familiar of- with it. I haven't experienced it yet. Okay. There's a bunch of chat rooms and, uh, you know, there's a hallway you can select and there's these two, well, because of who I am and who I'm connected to, uh, what I see a lot of, or what I end up participating in a lot of is this kind of woke anti-woke discourse. And, uh, there's different, there's a lot of conversations around that. And those rooms get really big. It's really a, kind of a hot topic. And I think people are really trying to work out this thing. And I think that, um, there are different um, meanings to the word woke uh, within the black community. Uh, it ha- it came from the 80s or something like that. It was from a, a poet uh, brought that up. It has a, a pedigree in and of itself. It's positive. It, it, um, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it has to do with being aware of you know, structural inequalities or aware of, of the suffering um, and then you know, being aware of that and then, and then working from that uh, viewpoint onward. Mm-hmm. And then there's a second version of wokeness that is being uh, used in the anti-woke crew, which would be me, which is all this behavior that we see where people mm-hmm. are claiming to be oppressed or claiming the oppressed outlook and then turning around and oppressing everybody else. Right. And um, and so the, the anti-woke rooms, it seems like we're free speechy, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're more diverse in, in our skin tone. Um, and uh, I, I want to continually go and expose myself to wokeness. Um, but there is a, re- a rigidity there. And there is a point that I've seen where it ends conversation. It, it, uh, it does all these different rhetorical moves to eventually 
take everybody out of the conversation who doesn't agree with it. Mm-hmm. That's why I see it over and over again. And then there's no more conversation. There's just right. a bunch of agreeing or they bring up more people in order to perform that ritual of uh, degradation. Like that's one thing that it can do uh, mm-hmm. and, or, the, or they ask for money um, in the very extreme <laughs> cases, right? Um, so it, it's just a phenomenal um, – it's a phenomenal uh, thing to watch. And the question then is, how do we have discourse? Like, what are the foundational rules to keep the conversation going and to make sure that the conversation ma- maintains its interestingness, doesn't become echoey, chambery? Like, what are, like, the ground rules you think? Um, um, I don't think they're bored with themselves yet, you know, so um, they're not going to change things uh, to make things interesting yet. Yeah. Um, conversation can't be had if disagreement means that you are indeed racist, right? Mm-hmm. If yeah. uh, somebody accuses you of something, you say, well, why do you say that? Or I don't see how it's, you know, you're, you're being racist. You know, if, if a counter argument is inherently oppressive and racist, then we're not gonna get anywhere. There's no yeah. conversation, conversation's done. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and I've seen this, I've been, in my request to have conversations, I've been, uh, you know, ostracized and uh, att- attempts to degrade me have yeah. been, uh, you know, um, thoroughly perpetuated. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I see it there. And, I mean, let's put it this way. When rhetoricians can't talk to each other, <laughs> when when professional communicators can't communicate, risk root. Oh, man. You know? And, I mean, yeah. part of the reason why I wrote the book uh, that I wrote um, a little over a year ago now, I guess. Okay, yeah. Is to try to save rhetoric and composition from, you know, this anti-rhetorical wave. Yes. You know that that seems to be washing over everybody. Yeah. Right. And um, if there are people who aren't into it, they're not saying anything because, well, they don't want to. They saw what happened to me, you know, <laughs> and I'm black. You got, yeah, you got you got canceled more or less, or, or at yeah, least uh, much. raked over the coals. Yeah. Yes, within the wow. field anyway. Yeah. You seem, uh, uh, last time we spoke, there was a bit, there, there was some anger that you were, it seemed like, sorry, you, you were having some anger. You seem not, not angry about it anymore. Like, is that, am I being um, accurate? Yes. Here? When we first spoke, I was very passionate and excited about finally being able to talk about this stuff. And, yeah. uh, it really, it really came off. Um, I guess now I am, I am a little relaxed, um, and that is because I'm finding more people, okay, um, you know, with whom I can, you know, work with, and and who also have, you know, the same feelings I have, and um, want mm-hmm. to do something about it. So I mean, I'm finding more people. I was very alone last time we spoke, and now I don't feel so alone. So okay. I am I am a little calmer regarding that. Okay, you you found your cool guys club. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in in a group situation, um, because I'm starting to become a moderator in this voice chat thing. Um, so I, I was wondering, like, what do you think of, like, either basing it on your book would probably be a good way to organize this. But what are some of the foundational rules of discourse uh, in order to have interesting conversations or in order to navigate disagreement? Uh, like, what are the core principles and then... We can go up from there. 
the the core core principle i think comes from um the philosopher kenneth burke who came up with this idea of um several ideas actually but one is just plain identification the purpose um according to burke isn't to um the purpose isn't to persuade so much as it is to identify with your audience your audience has to see you as something familiar you know, um, something familiar enough to them to listen to, oh, right? Okay. So it's it's more about ethos than logic or or emotion initially, right? Okay. Um, Aristotle says something similar. He said ethos might be the most important aspect of rhetoric because if people don't see you as credible, you know, um, you're done before you begin. Okay. Right. Um, I mean, he did say that you can you can uh, create ethos through your words as you're talking. Uh, well, you have to time. at some point. Your um, reputation but, has to be formed uh, over time. Right. So, yeah. Right. Right. Um, so there's that idea, you know, um, making sure that people know uh, that you have the same goals they do, even if you're coming about it the wrong way or the right, the, a different way, yeah. the wrong way to them. Right. Okay. Uh, you have uh, similar values, um, um, attitudes and beliefs. Maybe they're not the exact same, but they're close enough that you can have some sort of identification with the other person. Mm -hmm. And that involves repeated interaction, right? Uh, it involves good faith, right? Um, and, and it involves doing your best to understand what the other person's values, attitudes, and beliefs are. This is not easy stuff, you know, um, by, by any stretch of the imagination, especially mm -hmm. if you're entering into something like that, something like Clubhouse, um, with a um, what I'm calling a low intrapersonal empowerment. Um, now, now remember, I said that empowerment is intrapersonal, um, interactional, which is what's going on with Clubhouse. Yeah. And uh, behavioral. The first step is the intrapersonal, how we understand ourselves, um, how we uh, feel secure within ourselves, positive self-regard, and things like that. Yeah. If you enter into a conversation or like what's going on in clubhouse with a low intrapersonal uh, empowerment you're not going there to enter into a conversation you're going there to protect yourself right you're going there to defend your ego and your thoughts right um, an intrapersonal empowerment um, suggests an open mind heart and will Right. When you're walking into a, that kind of situation to the point where, OK, if I if I'm proven wrong, it won't be devastating because I, I have a, a, a strong enough, secure base that this won't end my life. Right. Yeah. And I'll just be wrong. If somebody disagrees with me, they're disagreeing with my idea. They're yeah. not saying I'm an awful person. Yeah. Right. Um, so that takes a strong intrapersonal component. A lot of what goes on, and I, I see this with a lot of um, diversity training and things like that, people start with the interactional, right, and try to move on to the behavioral. They skip the interpersonal, and that's the problem because we mm -hmm. have so many people entering into things who are really trying to protect themselves more than they're trying to, you know, uh, collaboratively come to a, a, a truth or something productive, right? Yeah. So uh, long story short, you know, um, people need to uh, be more mindful, more metacognitive, if you will, thinking about how they think, understanding themselves, being more self-aware, 
being able to self-manage their emotions, figuring those mm-hmm. things out. So it takes a lot of um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. work. Um, I'm reminded of that that joke, that psychology joke. Um, uh, how many people does it take to change a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, how many people does it take to have a fulfilling and productive conversation? As many as you want, but they have to want to have a productive yeah. conversation and not just yeah. say they do, but really, you know, come to defend their stance. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that um, we, we were talking about Evergreen and, uh, you know, how they were behaving in certain moments collectively. And you said that there's these discourses that there are the outgrowth or the behavior is the outgrowth of a discourse. And what I notice uh, being very rhetorically minded myself is I, I pay attention to words. Words really stand out to me. And there are certain phrases or terms that are emergent in uh, what I'm going to call woke uh, discourse right now, and I'm using yeah. the second definition, um, right, right, right. like words or violence. When somebody says that, then you know, even though that's the behavioral or interpersonal, that's a part of the discourse that actually leads to, or or uh, or is or is a twisted version of a uh, poor interpersonal uh, disempowerment. When when you start to say certain phrases. How do I phrase this? It seems like certain aspects of wokeness uh, prevent people from having an anti-fragile self or, right. or it's the expression of a traumatic worldview or it causes somebody to just be immersed in traumaturgy, I guess, is yes. one way to put it. Well, victimhood is the ultimate ethos in this discourse. OK. Right. I mean, that's how you, you, you uh, get the credibility. You insist and show through your intersectional disposition or, or, or whatever, um, that you are indeed the oppressed, right? Mm-hmm. And you can really do that if you re-signify things like violence to mean like disagreeing with yeah. you. <laughs> you know, um, that's, a, that's a better, um, that's a good strategy for maintaining um, a feeling of victimhood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, in rhetoric, it's just called resignification, or it's called various things. Actually, um, mm-hmm. the con, the um, the term that I, I hear outside of academia a lot and within is concept creep, right? Um, yeah. A term that used to mean I, I'm trying to write about this now. Um, um, a term that used to mean one very narrow thing has been broadened to being all kinds of things. So, yeah, um, yeah. harm. For instance, you hear this uh, this idea that you, you, this is doing harm to people of color and things like that. Um, harm that that meaning has been broadened, right? Yeah. Now it means all kinds of things. Now it means a um, you know a mean look. Now it means having a conversation with somebody else over here that may, through some kind of slippery slope, cause harm over here. Yeah. Weinstein was accused of causing harm to the Evergreen students when he talked to Fox News. Right. Yeah. Uh, Because uh, that, you know, through this, you know, speculative slippery slope, you know, um, that could cause these people to see it, who um, causes other people to get angry, causes them to show up at Evergreen, you know, with guns or something like that. Mm -hmm. They put all that together. Yeah. Right. So now harm is, you know, potential, you know, harm, really, as opposed to just actual harm, um, physical, even mental harm. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if we can broaden these uh, 
you know, terms to mean almost anything, then yeah. we can definitely perpetuate the victim thing and maintain that ethos and, you know, uh, push people to genuflect indeterminately to us hmm. and therefore maintain or acquire and maintain power. Yeah. Could you... Could you help me, like, get my teeth into ethos? Like, what does that mean? Because it seems like we can reduce a lot to it. We can follow it down to there and then also see how different ethoses lead to other places. Um, well, ethos ultimately uh, is credibility. You know, um, how do I convince you that you should listen to me? Um, you can have, you can come with ethos, your resume, your reputation and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, that's how Cicero really embraced it. Aristotle hmm. said you can do it, you know, um, through utilizing language in real time, understanding the values, attitudes, and beliefs of your audience and touching on those as you explain yourself so that they say, oh, okay, I understand what this person is uh, talking about. This person feels, sounds similar to how I feel and sound. Um, I feel more comfortable listening to this person, Right. So there's a, a comfort kind of ethos. Okay. Um, a familial kind of bond then. Uh, kind of almost like it's, it's deep. It's like a human bond. It's, it's almost yes. an animal. Like you're, you're really connecting. Uh, yes. Um, okay. Burke also had a term, consubstantiality, right? To, mm -hmm. to exist with other mm -hmm. people. You know, okay. we share substance almost. So yeah. that, that seems to be what you're talking about, the deep um, understanding. Okay. And so uh, in the case of if, if to say that the victimhood is the ethos that comes with a uh, that makes victim victimhood very difficult to define, but very easy to feel. So if you're acting from a victim stance, if you're acting from a victim, sorry to use this word, not academic at all, energy, if you're embodying that um, in a performative and then in a believing sense, uh, then your your actions and your words and everything will kind of resonate with that core. Uh, it's like like an actor embodying yeah. a, a role. Okay. The Stanislavski method, I think, is <laughs> method acting, right? Yeah. I'm just going to take this on and not break character. Yeah. You know, for six yeah. months so that I can really get into this role, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's interesting. Um, hmm. That that does seem to be uh, what's going on. That's that's how you get people with relative privilege insisting that they're being oppressed, right? I mean, I, I find it very ironic that you have to have a significant amount of privilege to complain that you don't have privilege, right? Um, Evergreen. Could you student. impact that? Like, okay, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean by that? You have to have some privilege to complain that you don't have privilege. Yeah, okay. Right? Um, you have to have time on your hands. Yes. You know, it takes time to occupy Wall Street. I'm not calling that, you know, something comparable to wokeness. I'm just saying... Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why activism is uh, under the uh, academic field of leisure studies. You know, <laughs> that's the thing. Leisure studies. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason why, you know, activism is a part of that field. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you, you do have to have some time and resources to be able to do these things. You do have to have the relative comfort of being an evergreen student. Yes. You know, to do these things. Otherwise, you're too busy trying to survive because you really are oppressed. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I think you can even scale that up to corporate level activism, where a lot of nonprofits are the activist class. And you have to actually have a very rich society to afford these nonprofits, right? Right. Because they're basically a sink on. So they are the privileged class, or or our society is so privileged that it can have that. Yeah. 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 Have you, uh, what would you say, like, if we can kind of come up with like some archetypes um, in a way of ethos um, victim victim being one what are what's do you have one for you or, or a couple for you or like where where would be a good place to uh, for for a student who wants to engage uh, with these uncomfortable conversations what do you think is the correct ethos or is there a concept that you uh, have for that what would that be um well are you talking from a woke standpoint or an anti-woke standpoint yeah like well like the counter to the victim what what would be the best uh ethos to have to deal with the victim mentality and to kind of position it into a less victim mentality Um, i really want to act yeah um i think it was isaiah berlin um several people have talked about this but there's a difference between freedom from and freedom to Right. Uh, You know, freedom from oppression, freedom from um, discrimination. um, But then it's also freedom to pursue life, liberty and happiness. Right. It's freedom to chase your goals and things like that. The freedom to is a uh, opposite ethos, I think, to take that that stance and, uh, and, and basically say, you know, because I am a black person, I owe it to. Um, the people who came before me to strive, you know, towards um, happiness and my goals and, and, and bettering things, right? Because yeah. of them, they give me the secure base, right? Uh, to say, okay, now I'm going to extend their legacy, right? Yeah. Um, freedom from is I'm going to pretend that things are as bad as they were when Frederick Douglass was doing his thing, you know? <laughs> you know, and um, I'm going to try to get freedom from all these kinds of things. Right. Yeah. And ignore the, um, the 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 progress we've made. Of course. Yeah. Or, or minimize that in very in yeah. the very least. Yeah. Right. Right. Things aren't perfect by any means. I mean, racism is still around. I mean, I would never say otherwise. Um, yeah. There are ways of dealing with it um, that are less victim based and more victor based. If you want to, yeah. you know, yeah. do the opposite. Yeah, we can do a little uh, rhetorical flourish there. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of gymnastics are, is fine. It, it seems like if you're if you are in the freedom to camp, uh, I'm I'm uh, seeking liberation to build something. It, it automatically gives you the prompt to, to there. There's all these values that I can just off the top of my head see that that inspires or requires one. Uh, one yeah. is responsibility. Uh, one would be uh, gen- uh, gratitude and generosity, like being really aware of like taking nothing for granted, uh, mm-hmm. taking it as, a, as an opportunity. Sure. Um, and then when you interact with other people that you, I think you're already tending, well, how do we maximize? Like you're already working on like, how do we get to the behavior right. step? Right. There's a, there's a win-win slash growth mindset yeah. to the freedom too. Yeah. Right. You know, how, how do we progress together forward? Right. Yeah. Um, that attitude is very different from the preferred ethos of the woke. Yeah. Right. 
which is um, how do we, you know, um, you know, get freedom from these certain things, even if we are actually free from it, you know, and we're we're playing this role that we're not right. How do we perpetuate that idea? Yeah. 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 The the concept creeps because it's going to happen. Well, okay, maybe not. There's like within concept creep, let's say with the word harm, um, there's a inflation of the value of harm uh, in in two respects. One, that actual harm is difficult, more difficult to speak about and identify, and then uh, semi-actual or uh, you know systemic or implicit harm uh, is everywhere, and so you can you can find it everywhere, but you can't locate it at, at a certain uh, right. in a certain way. Um, I wonder what would happen with uh, if there's a similar concept creep with the freedom from, um, which is a difficult thing to conceptualize. But what I see in these discourses, when the woke and the anti-woke meet, every once in a while they'll meet or they'll be talking about each other. And there's a lot of talking past each other. And I think that the people who are in the freedom from camp don't understand the freedom to camp and the freedom to camp aren't actually recognizing the freedom from camp for what it actually is. Mm-hmm. They, try, they, they do say, you know, we know racism exists. We know there's problems with, on all levels of our society. But what's your freaking problem? Why are you, you know, like, so it's really difficult to get them to, to see each other, to recognize each other. Yes. And you need you, you need both, you know, freedom from, you know, oppression as well as freedom to. I mean, that's that's the ideal yeah. uh, situation. Um, but yeah, I am. Um, I'm, I'm always reminded of Kenneth Burke when when I talk about these things and, and mindset and how we look um, to the world through what he called a terministic screen, hmm. um, which really uh, means and I'm paraphrasing him, of course. You know, um, each of us, I mean, we can't acknowledge everything. We're not, you know, uh, you know, omnipresent, um, you know, omniscient rather. Uh, we, we can't do that. But so we tend to select certain things and deflect other things. Mm-hmm. Right. And freedom from, well, you're selecting, you know, um, aspects of society that could possibly be deemed oppressive. And freedom to, you're selecting the things that, you know, um, you know, reflect a growth mindset, right? Yeah. Um, for example, in my field, there's something called linguistic justice, right? Um, and it basically. <laughs> oh, I already know where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong um, though. <laughs> to, 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 teaching um, standardized English is inherently racist. Yeah. Right? I knew. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and justice. so we shouldn't. We shouldn't emphasize um, standard English or or what many call language of wider communication, right? It's not standard in the strict, strunk and white way. It's yeah. just um, the kind of typical way um, of speaking in modern United States uh, English. That's considered inherently racist. So what they're doing, they're selecting the history of that English. It came from colonizers. Right. Yeah. Um, um, you know, they're they're selecting that and they're deflecting the pragmatic value of uh, understanding this dialect, so that in certain situations, you can be rhetorical and decide in order to identify with this audience, I can I can write in this certain way. 
Yeah, right? code switch. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah, and code code switching is also considered inherently racist because it says, you know, um, my way of talking is only good at home. I have to change it out there, you know, which is inherently racist. Um, again, yeah. you're you're selecting certain things and you're deflecting the pragmatic value of this. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. I embrace the pragmatic value um, because, well, as a rhetorician, you know, I, I want to figure out the want to have as many tools as possible to be as persuasive as possible or to help my audience identify with me uh, to yeah. the best of my ability. So I'm um, where a, a freedom to mindset may take my take on it. Right. I'm going to use this as a tool to grow, as a tool to make things better, as a tool to um, communicate with other people. And then there's the this is inherently racist. And if uh, you make uh, students of color do this, you're racist. I have to fight the racism. Yeah. yeah. Right. So there are two. And, and listen, um, standard written English, all those things are true. It, it did come from colonizers. Right. Yep. You know, um, it, it you know, it, it was part of. Um, you know, their preferred way of speaking. But what's also true is that, you know, it's a good tool to have if you're going to participate in a deliberative democracy mm-hmm. in which you have to talk to a, a lot of different people. Yeah. What's more, I don't think students are paying tuition to learn things they already know. You know, they already know the, their, their quote unquote home dialect. Yeah, right? but, but do they know how to complain about it? That's the question. <laughs> they're learning. They're learning how to complain about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you, if you scale that up, if you, just with that example with um, casting code switching as inherently some sort of discrimination or some sort of inconvenience that's pushed upon, um, let's say the the, uh, the black individual or a Latino individual or somebody who's. Uh, has a home dialect and then then the broader whiteness dialect and then mm-hmm. I, i've i've heard that where they say uh where there's this performative victimhood or this victimhood stance of people who know more than one language it's like i had to learn english outside of my home and then i had to learn you know another dialect in my home i'm like to me automatically i think isn't that awesome that you have more than one tool yeah. like you actually have more you can go places that I can't. You you can go into these other places now. Uh, yes. Yes. Well, better. that's again. That's a, that's a, a one way of looking at it that isn't being um, taken by the quote unquote woke, because I mean they're focused on the disrespect of having to code switch or something like that, right? Yeah. And, and, and and I get that. The, yeah. the, the the issue is though, and this is what they try to you know uh, push. Not everybody identifies that intensely with a dialect. I am I am not how I speak. You know, uh, mm. I'm something uh, in, in my sense of selfhood. Anyway, okay, I'm yeah. something deeper than that. Yeah, they're basically saying if you um, one one popular theorist said it's like cutting off their tongues to uh, have them write in um, uh, uh, an English deemed standard, right? Because uh, it's, they're, they're, they're being somebody they're not. Well, it's right? actually growing another tongue in, in actuality. Yeah, right, 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 <laughs> right. So huh. it depends on what screen uh, you yeah. look at this through and what you're selecting and deflecting. 
but when it scales up, I'm just trying to think, well, if everybody takes really takes that seriously and everybody implements that, then we're going to turn into uh, it, it just segregates people more and more and more and more. Right. And right. then and then what do you do? Uh, like and this is the problem with what I am calling wokeness right now within Clubhouse. It's like if you get into that space, then you will get bored sooner yeah. or later, or you're just going to have to listen to the same people saying the same things over and over again, because there's such a limiting factor in that. And I just think that, right. that there's some inherent thing that if you scale it up and maybe I'm just trying to work through, like, how do you convince people that if you do the math on, on this stuff, like it's going to end up segregating everybody. It's going to actually, well, you know, increase difference disparity. Haven't you heard that uh, black people can't do math? <laughs> Have you heard that one? <laughs> the ethical mathematics. Oh no! Is this the thing too? Oh, you you don't know about this? Oh, I don't want to know about it. Ethno math. Oh my god! Uh, Oregon <laughs> Department of Education just put out. Uh, I'll, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Right? There's this document saying, uh, you know, to expect uh, the black kids to learn math the same way as the white kids is inherently racist. So we should mm. teach them differently. And by teach them differently, we don't have to focus on the right answer. It's their their willingness to try is what we're grading. God. And you're seeing this you're seeing this in college too. Yeah. You're seeing this in college too when it comes to teaching writing. Um so yeah, so that's a thing. Oh, that's so bigoted. It's so terribly bigoted. It's so terribly bigoted, but Apparently, it's progress. I guess so. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I'm glad to have you in, in a different position because, like, there's one way to react to this that I try not to react to, but but it's a, it's a valid reaction is is anger, is outrage, yeah. um, yes. which which I feel kind of boxes me in. But like, there's some good energy there. Or to draw that to draw upon that in my audience is not something I actually want to play with. I don't yeah. want to play with fire. I want to play with uh, the the problem with going the opposite route, which would be to laugh at it, is that I'm laughing it off, which is not is you know like so i have to like find this ground in the middle like this ethos in the middle between you know uh, dealing with the toxic thing that we're dealing with um but not to be stained not become the monster you know and then not to refuse it or to completely deflate it um through laughter which is really good at, at disseminate or kind of uh inflating and, and bringing well, breaking it, through that seriousness it sounds like you're working on your interpersonal empowerment Right. Hmm. How, how do I handle this in a way that's productive without yeah. shutting things down or making things worse? Right. Um, and that takes a lot of self-awareness and, and, and self-management. Yeah. Right. That is inherent in uh, interpersonal um, empowerment. So mm. Mm. You're, you're, you're taking the right steps hmm. for sure. But what, uh, it's yeah. what, where where are you at? Like, uh where are you at? How do you deal with this stuff when you see University of or-, or you know Oregon State um, saying this, doing this? Um, well, I I do things like write about it. You know, um, I've been doing a lot of op eds lately because, frankly, I think the um, the situation is dire, and I can't write in a scholarly journal that won't come out for two years and only six people will read. Yeah. Right, so <laughs> I have to start doing these op eds. So I've been writing a lot of. Uh, op-eds and articles and and things like that um and you know frankly i just i, I go into it this is gonna sound crazy um, 
but there's this uh bushido code the samurai code like you go into you go into you go into battle thinking you're already dead right i'm already oh, okay. a dead person therefore i won't fear being killed right so i have that samurai kind of attitude towards it like I, i'm already canceled yeah pre-canceled right <laughs> I've, I've already i'm already degraded i'm just gonna go in here and and yeah. do what i want to do plus i mean i um i i i, I sincerely want to get to a, a place that is productive for everybody and you have to go through this to do that and i'm willing to do it right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i guess it's the uh power of my convictions hmm. that gets me through mm-hmm I see that you've done uh, at least one other interview. Uh, was it with Heterodox? I see that. Uh, uh, yeah, that was. A, when was that? It was sometime last. Oh, okay. Last month. Um, yeah. Do you have any? Uh, well, okay. To wrap up, I would like a like a brief reading list. Your top, your t top three or five. Uh, I, I th and I hear Burke a lot. Kenneth Burke is yeah, popular. Okay. Cool one. Uh, All right. And then and then maybe like recommendations for other resources that you think are, are hopping right now for people to go to that want to gain more tools I, in this. I would read Burke, uh, Rhetoric of Motives, where he talks, uh, he dives deep into the whole identif identification thing. Um, I, he has he also has something interesting, uh, Rhetoric of Religion, oh. which can really be effective here, given the fact that. Um, the woke are being considered a kind of religion, right? They they definitely act that way. Mick Warder has gone so far as to say they are a religion. It's not metaphorical, uh, right? So um, rhetoric of religion talks about how you know certain terms, and the, what what Bert calls God terms, are out there that are kind of uh, uh, affecting how we look at the world and things like that. If your God term is victim, for instance, mm -hmm. then everything is proof. Or potential yeah. proof of your victimhood. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, mean, I, I would go ahead and read that. Just Google Burke and see what comes up. Not Edmund Burke. Not the, you know, um, conservative Enlightenment dude. Um, uh, Kenneth Burke. Kenneth. Um, there's also Wayne Booth who wrote a book called Rhetoric of Rhetoric. The oh, Rhetoric of cool. Rhetoric. And when he talks about uh, not just the importance of rhetoric, not just the um, the dangers he sees in the devolution of rhetoric in academia. He also talks about something akin to um, uh, fair-minded critical thinking. He calls it listening rhetoric. I'm going to listen to you and try to understand where you're coming from. You're going to do the same to me, and we will go hmm. from there. Okay. Right. So I'm going to understand the values that you uh, emphasize in your life, and you're going to understand the values that I emphasize. We're going to realize that we have similar values. We just emphasize differently. And then we can we can move on from there. So I would I would go uh, with that. Hmm. Um, and that's Wayne Booth. Yeah. Um. Just a sub note. We one failure of conversation uh, to maintain interestingness is getting locked into defining terms. Uh, which you know it has to be terminal, but sometimes it's interminable. Um, I like I like the I, I'm much more uh, you know. Uh, defining our values is much more interesting to me but that's just a sub note uh getting okay. lost into like you know what does this word mean what does this word mean yeah anyhow sorry I'm just thinking yeah. a lot here it's, it's so totally Burke right. and booth 
and uh, Eric Smith's uh, empowerment. Yeah, Eric rhetoric Smith. Of, rhetoric of empowerment, right? Um, yeah, well, the book, I don't have it with me. The book is called A Critique of Anti-Racism okay. in Rhetoric and Composition. And it's like $700 because it's an academic uh, publication. It's currently $90. $90. Um, The paperback is coming out in the summer. That will be substantially uh, lower in price. Nice. Um, So that's... Paperback. Yes. Yes. Paperback is coming. Critique of anti-racism. And any other resources that you're finding or other, uh, uh, yeah, resources that you're finding that are good for the current moment uh, that, that sustain you or that you think is a good uh, place for people to kind of uh, gain more skills in, in talking through these things? Well, looking at activism and the victim rhetoric within activism and how it does more harm than good, understanding that, yes, meta narratives can be deconstructed, but yeah. we still need something. Right, yeah. <laughs> you can't just uh, act in a void. Um, Jonathan mm-hmm. Smucker um, has a book that uh, I talk about this book all the time. It's called Hegemony How To: A Roadmap for Radicals. Hmm. And yeah, he he talks about his time planning um, and participating in Occupy Wall Street in um, the Seattle stuff from uh, twenty years yeah. ago. Okay. Um, he talks about that, and he talks about the detriments of insularity, right? And and uh, this performance, right? Um, and this uh, hmm. this performance of victimhood, as opposed to actually doing concrete steps to get things done, right? Hmm. Uh, so he 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 writes thoroughly about that, his experience, what he saw, and the problems with it. And okay. basically, I mean, he doesn't say empowerment theory, but that's kind of what he's getting at. Okay. And so he's coming at it from the perspective of somebody who has been an active activist right. and right. then critiquing the movement's failures and then right. providing solutions or, or right. other ways to go. Okay. That sounds very relevant to what we see now. In, uh, yeah. More people need to read that book. People need to read that book. Okay. You know, um, it's accessible, right? Um, you know, it's, Does it have uh, illustrations? It's like thorough. How to, how to, put on black block block yeah. <laughs> not quite um but uh it, it's it's a good read i think people should really pick that one up if nothing else well professor smith thank you so much for your time thank you for uh promoting my work to your poor students forcing them to <laughs> go through what it's, i went it's, through <laughs> it's for their own good they have to see where rhetoric works and where it goes wrong and yeah. why Right. Yeah. And then use it themselves to not just analyze things, but to, you know, um, get their own points across. Yeah. Right. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Maybe one it, of these days you can visit the class. I don't know. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you get, if you want to do a and a let me know. We'll set up a time. Is there right. any other thing that you've noticed from the Evergreen story that, that's peculiarly uh, fascinating to you or, or like uh, awe-inspiring or particularly oh. terrible? <laughs> Um, yes, yes, there's, um, the, it's just, it's pure audio, right? There's one of the uh, episodes where it's just audio and it's Brett Weinstein talking yeah. to some students who are actually willing to have a conversation. Yeah. And one of the students says something akin to stop using logic. White, your white <laughs> logic. <laughs> yeah. Stop being logical. You're being logical. 
<laughs> I remember looking at my students and having them, you know, they're wearing masks because of COVID, but I see their eyes like, what, <laughs> what just happened? And, and then, and then same, same episode, same scene, somebody walks by and they're talking to uh, the students who are talking to Brett Weinstein and they say, don't, don't talk to him. That's what he wants. <laughs> of course, it's just, because he's a normal adult. You know, with an appreciation for logic and rationality and and liberal mindedness, right? He's a professor at a liberal arts college. Yes, he wants to talk. That's what everybody wants to do. The problem is that nobody's talking. So yeah. I mean it's yeah, that's the episode that really drove it home for me and some of my students. <sighs> yeah. That moment. That that whole conversation. Um Brett, Brett is uh, amazing in his yeah. composure uh, to just stand really there is. when they're telling him, stop talking, just shut the F up, just shut the F up, you know, yeah. but they want him to, that's the thing, that's the thing, even the performative, uh, the performativity of shutting down a conversation is a part of the conversation that they want to have, it's a part of the dialogue, they shut things down, and then it's over, so they want to keep shutting things down, it's, it's, right. it, it's really weird. It's really weird. It's really weird, and also it's it's to rob some humanity from Brett, right? That's also a degradation ceremony. To yeah. invite somebody up to the podium and then not let them talk. Yeah. Right? <laughs> to, yeah. to insist that they come up and then not let them talk when they come up. I mean, that's that's all about degrading him. Yeah. That was yeah. the purpose there. Yeah, keeping him you on know? a leash. And, um, yeah. 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 Cool. Is that a Millennium Falcon behind you or a projector? That is a Millennium Falcon. Yeah. It's so squat. Is yeah, that like, it's a tiny did you one. build it? Oh, okay. I did not build it. No. Okay. I don't know where I got the thing actually. <laughs> Just hanging out. Okay. But it's yeah, I got all kinds of stuff in here, man. It's a it's definitely I got Boba Fett's here somewhere. Oh wow, okay. Yeah. That's your method. Oh yeah, okay. Now all the I see all the little tiny Star Trek things popping up now. Yeah. The monsters. Yeah. Well, it, what's on your plate next for the weekend? I'm gonna end the recording. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. And uh, congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.